Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Uh, hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16. And while you're doing that, I have a couple things to announce as well. Um, some of you have seen our, our social uh, media that we're closing down the coffee shop. And uh, so as of October 31st, that will be our last day. So that means if you get a welcome bag today and you have a gift card to the overflowing cup, you might want to use that. Uh, but well, we might give you five bucks down the road or something. We'll figure something out. But, but it's a bittersweet thing. You know, we started this ministry almost five years ago. And we feel like the Lord, as it's run its course and as we've been trying to, the reason is we, we need space for the school. And so, you know, we're starting a, a K pre-K through eighth grade, but it will only be sixth grade the first year, and then we'll transition to the last two grades. But, um, and we need space, and we've been, uh, you know, just trying to figure out, praying about what the Lord would have us to do. We looked at a gazillion different options, and uh, just in the day and age that we live and, and all of that thing, we think it's just best to have it all under one roof, and uh, for the school to be uh, secure, and it doesn't make sense to have a public situation going on when a school is in session. So we just live in a day and age where things have changed, you know, and we're not, we're not going to be, uh, you know, we're not, we're gonna, we take it serious. So we're going to do what we can to secure the school and all of that kind of stuff. But with that said, it makes the most sense. I mean, it really does when you think about it. And thankfully the Lord has gone before us, you know, and, and talked to, when we talked to the employees of the the overflowing cup, they were all prepared and the Lord had already done that work. And again, they're excited about the transition, but obviously, you know, be praying for them that as the Lord leads where they, he would have them go. Maybe, maybe they will, some of them be part of the school or whatever, but just be praying about that for them. Um, and then also, uh, we are starting our school of ministry. And so, uh, you can grab a brochure by the door on the way out and uh, it will explain all about the School of Ministry to you. There's also a QR code on that book that you can scan. It, there might be one up on the screen too, I'm not sure, but um, I'm not gonna turn around and look, but you can let me know if there is. But that was a cue to you, like, no, there's not, there is. Okay, there's not. There's not a QR code up there. But uh, anyway, so it's gonna be awesome, dude. I, I'm so excited to roll this out. We have um, Tuesdays and Thursday nights from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, the first semester, the classes will be Church History on Tuesday nights and Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit on Thursday nights and the classes just continue to be stacked. It's gonna be great. If you're interested in uh, feeling like maybe the, if you're a guy that you feel like the Lord's got a call on your life to pastor or to be in some sort of ministry, you should come. You should be part of that. Uh, if you wanna just grow in your faith and you want to, you know, you're a lady, you wanna grow in your faith and you wanna, uh, you, you have a teaching ministry and all of that kind of stuff and you've never had any kind of this kind of training, then you should also join, you know, to help facilitate and to grow in your understanding of these things. It will help you a lot. So, um, you know, the classes that we chose were things that, you know, I wish I would have known when I came into ministry. Just things that I've learned over the years that I think it would have been helpful um, up front to have learned, learned these things. So, um, again, nobody has arrived. I'll be taking these classes with you, even though I'll be teaching some of them. So, we'll be, uh, we'll be learning together. So, it'll be awesome. You never stop learning in the Lord. You know that? It doesn't matter who you are or how long you walk with Jesus, there's still so much to know. And so, um, and, uh, so we had our men's conference yesterday. It went amazing. So yeah, it was awesome. We had, uh, I don't know, 120-ish guys here from Middle Tennessee, and it was great. We even had a covered chapel from Cleveland, Tennessee, over by Chattanooga that had come, and uh, it was a great time of gathering together. I just love listening to guys sing. Like, I mean, it's great. The congregation, it's amazing. Every time we enter into worship, it's amazing. But to hear dudes singing at the top of their lungs is just amazing to me. You know, to, 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 to see that, them entering into the throne room. And of, of course, we had the Spradleys with us this morning, but they, Jason also and his son Beige uh, on the keyboards over here led our worship for that, for the men's conference. Was that not amazing this morning or what? Yeah. Uh, uh, Jason and, and Kayla and their, their daughter, Avia, and then Beige, their son. She's 12 years old, by the way, just playing beautifully. Wasn't that, oh, it's just so sweet. And Beige, he's 15. And they are musicianaries. So they go out all over the country and they share 
Christ through music. And uh, we support them as a ministry here, and we're grateful to have them local here to be able to join us this morning. And they're a sweet family, so if you don't know them, connect with them. You can check out their website right above here. You can see spradleyjourney.com, and uh, uh, make sure you check them out. They're, they're an amazing family. God's doing great things through them. Um, so the men's conference was great, as I said, and thank you to all the guys who helped with everything and uh, you know from the checking guys in to making sure all the chairs were straightened up and the snacks were in the place and then all the ladies who helped to make the sandwiches thank you guys so uh, why don't we give everybody a round of applause that helped out yeah <laughs> Acts chapter 16 this morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 40 with a message entitled a lifestyle that changes lives Stand with me once you're there, and we will read our text, Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, or verse 16, we read, as we were going to the to place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we come with great expectation to hear from you. Lord, you have something for each one of us here today found in this text. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts, Lord, that we wouldn't miss what you want to say to us today. And so we yield our attention to you. We open our hearts, Lord, to you, that you would speak to us. And Father, we want to also pray for the peace in Israel. Father, we pray for those who are being affected by this right now, Lord, all the families on both sides of the line. Think of the, uh, just the devastation that's going on and all the things that have occurred, and we know the enemy is at work, but Lord, you're greater. We pray for you would draw people to yourself in this moment, Lord. We know you use suffering, you use difficulty and war and all kinds of circumstances to draw people to yourself. So Lord, have your way in this circumstance. As the, what the enemy means for evil, use for good, God. We pray for those who are hurting today, Lord, of lost family members and just the, the murder that has occurred. And we ask you, Lord, to just bring comfort to them that if they don't know you, they'd be drawn to you. It's the only place to run. So, Lord, bring peace. Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace. You're the only way to have peace. And so bring peace over Jerusalem, over the hearts of those involved in all of this stuff. Not only there, but all over the world, Lord. The situation with the Ukraines and Russians, Lord, we pray for that situation as well. Lord, you're at work in, the, in all the circumstances, and so we just, we don't fear. And so comfort our hearts even as we stand by and await your return. That we wouldn't lose heart, Lord, we would stay the course. And so have your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you noticed that everybody's talking about lifestyle these days? From the doctor to the dentist to the dietitians. Hey, even the deli worker at Kroger's talking about lifestyle. The conversation's everywhere. Perhaps we should take it to heart and watch the way that we live. You know, that is one of the biggest complaints against Christians in our culture today is that our, our, we don't practice what we preach. Our lifestyle doesn't match our lips. Now, some of that is true. But the world also is just using this as an excuse to reject the gospel. It was Gandhi who once said, I like your Christ. I do not like you Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I don't know what Jesus he was talking about. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the, just the good man Jesus, I think. But here's what I know. That's the world's perception. 
So we have to be careful about the lifestyle that we're living. Do you know Jesus was incredibly careful about the lifestyle that he lived? In fact, Jesus lived a lifestyle that, that he became a magnet to people. People just gravitated towards Jesus because of his lifestyle. And the, primarily, the, one of the reasons is because Jesus never changed. He was the same all the time. You got the same Jesus in the good times as you got in the bad times. Jesus remained the same. He was constant. In fact, it was after he was beaten, scourged, after he was crucified on a cross that he, he says these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He never changed. Even in his darkest moments, Jesus remained the same. Jesus lived a lifestyle that changes lives. And we find this to be the case for the Apostle Paul as well. He lived a lifestyle that changes lives. Not on his own accord, but he found strength and contentment in Christ. He said it himself in Philippians chapter 4, verses, one through, uh, verses 11 through 13. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The lifestyle that Paul was living was one of surrender to Jesus, which produced a contentment in all things. He trusted the Lord no matter what he was going through, no matter what circumstance that he found himself in. He knew that the Lord would supply the strength that he needed to get through whatever he was going through. That's a lifestyle to adopt, Christian. Paul didn't just say these things, he lived them out. And it's evident in our text this morning. I've divided these 24 verses into four sections relating to what it means to live a life uh, that changes lives. First, it means attacking the problem, not the person. Look with me at verse 16 again. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to the, and said to the spirit, I have command you, I command you in the name of the Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So you might recall, if you were here last week, that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke had made their way to Neapolis. They didn't stop there, though. They journeyed on 10 miles in to the metropolis called Philippi. We learned in the text that Philippi was a Roman colony. That's important for us to understand because it tells us the condition of the culture. It was an incredibly pagan culture, so much so that they didn't even have a, a, a synagogue there in Philippi, meaning the worship of the one true living God was sparse at best. There was a remnant of believing women who would gather together down by the river, which was customary when they were in cities with no synagogues, the ladies would go down to the river and pray. It was there that Paul met this lady named Lydia from Thyatira. She was a businesswoman. She had a home there in Philippi as she would sell her goods there. And um, she ends up coming to Christ. The Bible tells us that God opened her heart to the gospel and the gospel uh, came inside of her. She was changed and transformed. Not only her, but her whole household. Everybody believed in Jesus. Well, uh, Paul then, she employed, implored the, uh, Paul and his, his traveling companions to stay with her, and she won them over because they had nowhere else to go. That totally makes sense, but anyway. Uh, and uh, and what, what ends up happening now is they stay at Lydia's house, and they, it seems that they're, it's customary now for them to go to the river on a consistent basis and pray. It makes sense in a pagan culture that you go to the place that would seem like the low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, that would seem like that would be the low-hanging fruit. These people already believe in Yahweh. Now we just gotta get them to believe in Yeshua, Jesus. We just have to help them understand that the Messiah that's promised has come and his name is Jesus. So they begin there. 
And uh, they're on their way there, one day, after doing this over and over again, they, they have these, this encounter with this slave girl who, is, uh, who has a spirit of divination. In other words, she's demon-possessed. Now, in, in this culture, in the Greek culture, because of the things that she was doing, in other words, she was a fortune teller, they would have believed that she was possessed by a python spirit. Listen to what the New American Commentary says about this. It says the Greek would call this a python spirit. The python was the symbol of the famous Delphic oracle and represented the god Apollo who was believed to render predictions for future events. The serpent had thus become a symbol of augury and any uh, who was seen to possess this gift of fortune foretelling the future was described as led by the python. Greeks and Romans put great stock in augury, which is basically fortune-telling, and divination. No commander would set out on a major military campaign, nor would an emperor make an important decree without first consulting an oracle to see how things might turn out. A slave girl with a clairvoyant gift was thus a venerable gold mine for her owners. Apparently, being, having a, a demon-possessed slave was a lucrative business in this day and age. I don't suggest that anyone ought to get into it. It's apparently quite deadly, but um, her owners could care less because they were profiting from her condition. She was their bread and butter. No wonder they become so upset with the outcome of this run-in. Luke tells us that this girl, as she began to follow uh, Paul and his traveling companions on a daily basis would scream to the top of her lungs in my mind the way that I read the text. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. All the way down to the river. Every day they went. You might think like, oh, this is great. What an incredible PR person the Lord has set up. Not so. Not a good situation. This is, this is a, a demonic uh, interference of the gospel. And it might seem that, you know, she might be helped the case of the boss gospel, but the demonic is meant to mock the gospel. It's, meant, it's a tactic to dilute the gospel, to get the eyes off of Jesus completely. When, when she was saying these phrases, what, she was, what the demon was doing was associating with the cultural gods. When she would say, these men are the servants of the most high God, that phrase most high God in that culture would point them to Zeus. Okay, so they're servants of Zeus. Well, we already know who Zeus is. Diluting the gospel message. Defaming Jesus, who is the king of the gospel. They proclaim the way of salvation. That sounds innocent, but what, it, what really they're pointing to in the culture is that there were men slash saviors, you know, such as Caesar, who would be considered the, 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 the savior of their culture. And so, literally, it was pointing them completely away from the gospel, back to their own culture. It wasn't helpful at all. No doubt, Paul had prayed about this situation because he, he was sensitive to the spiritual realm and what was happening in that moment. And one day, after he had had enough, you ever been there? I mean, you, you might be here this morning. I've had enough, and you're looking at your spouse like, I've had enough. I'm not trying to create any problems, by the way. But he had enough. But notice what he does. He doesn't attack the person, he attacks the problem. He understands what the problem is here. How does he understand that? How does he know what the problem is? Because he's been given discernment from God. There are people in your life that are there to hinder your ministry. They're there to get you off track. They're meant to dilute your message. But it's not them. That's, that's not the problem. It is, but it isn't. 
What we have to do is we have to pray to God and ask, Lord, how do I handle this situation? How would you have me deal with this particular person? Notice what Paul does. He doesn't speak to her. He speaks to the spirit, it says. The girl's not the problem. What she's doing, she's doing by demonic influence. And so so Paul, understanding, listen to this now, his authority in Christ. Paul, understanding the authority in Christ, he he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. You know, the demonic realm trembles at the name of Jesus when it comes out of the mouth, listen to this though, of true believers. Like you can't just say the name of Jesus. There has to be a connection with Jesus for the power to be there. You have zero authority if you're not in relationship with God through his son. In other words, you can say the name Jesus in the demonic realm and it might end up getting you stripped and beaten. What do I mean? We see it happen in Acts chapter 19. Listen to this account. These guys are trying to cast out the name of, uh, cast out demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul proclaims. Not the Jesus that they're in relationship with, the Jesus that Paul proclaims. Acts 19, 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the men in whom the evil spirit, and the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Trying to deal with the demonic without a relationship with Jesus is a danger, dangerous venture, folks. I don't recommend trying to do it. You just end up getting stripped and beaten by the demons. They will overcome you because you have no authority. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, listen, the demonic fears the words that come out of your mouth when they're Jesus. I command you in Jesus' name. You have the authority in Jesus' name to do these things, and the demonic, when they hear those words from true believers, they flee. You might be sitting here today going, come on, really? 2,000 years ago, we're talking about this. That's not happening today. Oh, dude, are you serious? Like, are you looking around at the world today? Are you kidding me? The stuff going on in our world today is evidence of demons, folks. The stuff that's going on in the world today, why? The, the entire umbrella is under what I would call an umbrella of deception. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen in the last days? There'd be a great deception? Hey, there's a great deception in our culture today, and who's the great deceiver? The devil. The, the, the enemy loves it when people don't believe in him. They love it when you say, oh, that's not that. You know, 15, 20 years ago, when when people would talk about mental health, they would associate with demonic possession immediately. Do you know that was wrong? Do you know there really is mental health issues, right? People really do have mental health issues. Your brain is an organ just like anything else. Your heart, your lungs, And guess what? You're in a defiled body that is dying. And so to think that they're not real mental health issues is, well, for lack of a better term, crazy. There are. But I'll tell you this. Don't let the the pendulum swing too far to the other side to think it's all mental health and none of it's demonic possession. There are people who are termed mentally ill who are demon-possessed, no questions asked. There are, that, that's happening. Not everybody, but some. And there are people that work in the grocery store that are demon-possessed. There are people that, people live somewhat normal lives that are demon-possessed. The question is, are we in tune to the Spirit? And what will we do about it? You know what's interesting here? That 
Had Paul not had this interaction, would he have cast out the demon and the girl? Would he even had an opportunity to? Probably not. Probably not. He probably just passed her by. This was, a, a, this was an ordination from God that this girl would be in his path and that he would use his authority. And I would say to you that perhaps somebody is in your path that God is calling you to deal with in the same manner. Don't attack the person, attack the problem. The problem here is a spiritual problem. There's an issue with this woman because there's a demon inside of her. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 4, or 6, 12, do you, for you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood, folks. What we're wrestling with is a spiritual realm that we can't see. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And the authority we have in Christ is far greater than you'll ever even imagine. And will you operate in that power? What, what God has given you. The last thing you want to do is try and solve a spiritual problem with a fleshly means. That will not work. That will not work. We need to attack the problem. And in most cases, there's a spiritual problem going on. What we need to do as believers is ask God, what's the problem here, Lord? How do I deal with the spiritual problem happening here? Why do you think Hamas is coming against Israel? It's a spiritual problem. Do you know that? It stems all the way back from Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac. It's a spiritual problem. The things in your life. How do they relate to the spirit? How do they relate to the spiritual realm? The people that you're having problems with. Ask God, give me discernment. Paul certainly did that. And even though he was greatly annoyed, <laughs> he cast the demon out of this girl and her world changed. Her world radically changed. And let me tell you something, not just her world. What about everybody that was watching that? when Paul invoked the name of Jesus in that moment. People are watching your life. They're watching how you handle these situations. Don't attack the person, attack the problem. Well, a lifestyle that not only uh, means attacking the problem, not the person, but also uh, living a lifestyle that leads to change means taking the consequences of your Christianity like a champ. Check this out, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You know, sometimes when you set a person free in Jesus' name, the world goes ballistic and pounds on you. Ask Paul. That's what happened to him. He had done messed up casting this demon out as far as the, her owners are concerned. What did he do? He hit their pocketbook. Man, that'll get you killed in most countries, but it'll certainly get you killed in Philippi. Her owners, then it says they seized Paul and, and Silas. And I want you to get the idea here. Like they didn't just go come along with us. Like they grabbed them and they drug them. It's a violent seizing. It's a snatching away and dragging. This is a violent thing that's going on here. Where do they take them? To the magistrates. Every Roman colony had two magistrates. Their job was to rule over the people in their daily affairs. They were set up in the marketplace. That would be the public square. You know, in, in that day and age, there would be a judgment seat by most gates. 
And that's where judgment would happen in Israel. In Philippi, they went to the marketplace and that's where the magistrates were. These guys were brought before them. They were thrown down before these two magistrates. A crowd forms. They want to hear what's going on and listen to the accusations. These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. First and foremost, uh, you know, Judaism was governed, or, or Israel was governed by Rome at the time, subject to Rome. What was the requirement for the Roman, those who occupied there and over, ruled over Israel, to keep peace? The Romans wanted peace in their colonies and in their cities. What they're doing is they're saying, hey, these guys have rolled into town and they're creating a problem for us. That, that first and foremost, for a ruler... In a, in a Roman colony like that, they're like, okay, this is serious. Why? Because my head's on the line with Caesar. I'm called to keep peace. It doesn't stop there, though. You know, the accuser, he just goes on. He, he says to, these, to the magistrates, not only are they disturbing the city, but they're advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. Because in this day and age, uh, in, in biblical times, the Romans determined the religion that was allowed. You couldn't just freely practice your religion. It was state-ran. It's kind of like California. You know, they do the same thing, but it's going that way, I promise you. But, uh, but, but that was the idea. And so they, they drag them before them, and here now this kangaroo court is happening. And because these magistrates are more concerned about their own position and how they stand... Uh, you know, and the crowd hearing this, they begin, to, they begin to go nuts on Paul and Silas and the magistrates let them. And in fact, they contribute, they rip their clothes off and then they command that they're beaten with rods. They would take these small little uh, metal rods and they would wrap them together and that's what they would use to beat them. What you don't know, unless you know this story, is that Paul and Silas have a trump card that they could throw out on the table at any time and this would be over. This would be over in an instant. But they don't do it. Isn't that interesting? Aren't we always looking for a way of escape out of suffering in in our circumstances? How can I get out of this? Lord, if you'll just come down and open up the heavens and get me out of this circumstance, I'll, I'll follow you. What if... You followed him in those circumstances. What if those circumstances are going to take you down a different road that you could never go down outside of them? What if God is moving in the circumstances? What if he wants to use this particular suffering for his glory? Will you let him? Paul and Silas, I want you to understand this, could have made this situation stop in an instant. They're seized. Their accusations are brought to them. They say nothing. And they just let it happen, even though they could have stopped it. You know what that tells me? God is telling them something. There's something bigger here. Let it happen. There's something bigger here. Just go with this situation. Paul understood, by the way that he lived his life, That persecution spells O-P-P-O-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y, opportunity. He understood that it was the persecution that would would propagate the gospel. It would open up a door. He knew that God was in the midst of this situation, no doubt. Otherwise, he would have stopped it. And he would have thrown the trump card, but he didn't. God had something great in store through this circumstance. This is by no means uh, a setback. It's a setup for a divine appointment. Paul and Silas are taking the consequences of their Christianity like champs. They've taken it on the chin. Why? Because they know God is in the midst of something. And in our circumstances, perhaps God's doing the same thing. And we need to take the consequences of our Christianity like champs and take it on the chin if that's what it means. For his honor, for his glory. You know, instead of freaking out over our circumstances, we look to the sovereign God who's in control and we settle in 
and we rest in our circumstances in Jesus' name. We rest in them. There's peace in the midst of our troubles. Jesus said, you're gonna have troubles. And you know what? They're for your benefit. God works everything out for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. He's doing something through your situation. We don't freak out over these things. We settle in and we rest in the spirit because God is up to something. This goes on to tell us that the magistrate instructs Paul or instructs a jailer to take Paul and Silas to imprison them and to keep them safely. Guess what just happened? The transfer of responsibility came upon this one man's shoulders. His head is on the line now. This jailer is responsible for making sure nothing happens to Paul and Silas. And so what does he do? He does everything that he can to keep them safely. He puts them in the inner prison. He locks them up in shackles and he puts their feet in stocks. You know how stocks are. You know when your parents, when you were a kid, they put you in the stocks. You know what I'm saying. Oh, wait, is that child abuse? It might be. <laughs> in California it is, but anyway. Um, so, <laughs> from what I read, being in stocks is not incredibly comfortable. You can't shift around. Could you imagine sitting in the same position, legs kind of cocked, um, bent, and, and you can't move for hours or maybe even days? Incredibly uncomfortable, painful. But this man wasn't taking any chances because his head is on the line. The stage is set for a miraculous move of God. Listen to this. Only if Paul and Silas remain open to it. Only if Paul and Silas remain open to it. Well, not only is a lifestyle, uh, living a lifestyle that changes lives mean attacking the problem, not the person, and taking the consequences like a champ, but it means worshiping God even when it hurts. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, worship is an incredibly powerful thing. When we worship God, our hearts change. God changes us. There's something about music. There's something about engaging in music that changes us. You know this. You can put a a certain song on, oh, I'm happy. And all of a sudden you're like this, you know, you're just jiving with it. Or you can put a song on and you're like, you know, you want to beat somebody. You can get angry. You put an angry song on. Some of us were just like, I just need a good cry. So yeah, you put the sad one on it. <laughs> oh, there's something about music. There's something that God does in the midst of that, and the devil uses it too. But there's something about music that God designed to draw us. And when we, you know, there's no more powerful place where worship is more impactful than your place of hurt, in your place of suffering. When you worship in that place, you wanna see the power of God move. You come to him in your place of hurt, in your place of suffering. I've never been to prison, but I have to imagine it's a pretty rough place. Paul and Silas, they didn't do anything. They shouldn't be there, yet they're incarcerated, and they're, they've, after they've been beaten and all this kind of stuff, and it would be easy for them to start asking questions, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't that make sense? Why God? Lord, why would you allow this to happen? I mean, here we are, traveling into this pagan city. We're just trying to bring the gospel in. And why would you allow these guys to bring us before the magistrates and now be treated like this? They're not saying that. They're not asking. Paul didn't jump on the pity party uh, train. He didn't have pity parties for himself. He was too busy saying, God, there's something you're doing in this midst. Flip the script in your mind about the way that your circumstances are going. And you said, God, instead of saying, why God, what if you said, what do you want, God? What do you want to do in this situation, God? 
How do you want to work in this situation? You've clearly allowed this in my life. Even in your stupid choices, God is sovereign and he's doing something. And what if you just said, rather than why God, you said what God? What do you want to do in my life here, Lord? How do you want to use these circumstances? That's what they're doing. It tells us here, in the darkest moment, night, in the inner cell, no light. Paul and Silas began praying and singing hymns. They weren't asking God. They were praising God in their hurt. They were praising God in their suffering, in the midst of their circumstances. I don't know what prayers they were praying. I don't know what songs they were singing. What I know is that they were engaged in the secret place where they were coming before the throne of the king and creator. And God responded to their prayer and their worship in that moment with, listen to this, a localized earthquake. You ever been in one of those? Like a localized divine earthquake where God says, no, I just want it right here. Not anywhere else. I want it right at the foundation of that prison cell, that, that prison, the footprint there. That's the only place I want this earthquake to happen. No one else felt it because it was ordained by God for it to be localized to the prison because God was doing something inside of that prison through the prayers and the worship of two of his saints. And it tells us that the doors flung open and the shackles were dropped off. This was a miraculous moment. God was in the midst of this and he was responding to their prayer and their worship. Now, I have to be honest with you, if I'm in prison and the door open and my shackles come off, I'm gone. I'm out of there. And I'm guessing like I'd take half of you guys with me. We'd just be, we're out of here. It's interesting they don't go anywhere. It's interesting they don't, they just stay right there. Remember when Peter was in prison and the Lord led him out by the angel? But here's the thing is, God was leading And here in this moment, God is still leading. And Paul and Silas, they remain silent and uh, they remain stationary in their places. Why? Because there's a man's life on the line. Look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. This was the entire point of the imprisonment, folks. This is what it's all about. God is after the jailer. Paul has clear understanding now. Uh, And that's why he didn't bail when the doors flung open and the restraints fell off of him. Because God wanted to do a work in this man's life. And what if we started living a lifestyle that assumes that wherever we find ourselves is where God wants us to be? What if we begin to look at our circumstances like that? Well, God has me here for a reason. And we begin to ask the Lord, what do you want to do in these circumstances? Maybe it's with the coworker that you're having trouble with at work and you do everything you can to avoid them. And you're like, I don't want to see that person. Ah, There they come again. You know, people are difficult. They are difficult. But God has a purpose in that. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man to another. Maybe God's just trying to train you in some grace. Maybe he's trying to train you in some mercy. Maybe he's trying to train you in something, something other than that. Maybe he's trying to reach that person through you. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected and yet to still care and love for people. You can't do it on your own. Maybe it's with the, your neighbors in your neighborhood. It's like, you know, we're going to tell the HOA on you, you know. They're just trying to, they're taking notes of all your stuff. How do I know that? Yeah, that's a personal thing. I know. I'm letting it come out in the pulpit. I'm sorry. 
I, I originally had in my notes a, a, a neighborhood full of Karens, but somebody said, hey, I have some friends named Karen. And, um, and I was like, oh, no. I'm, hey, maybe it's in the traffic dram in Spring Hill, Tennessee, every day, every day. Assume wherever you are is where God wants you. Even in your dumb choices, he's doing something. He's sovereign. And he's at work in your life even when you can't. Paul knows this and that's why he's here. Imagine, pitch dark, everything's flung open, shackles off, and all you hear is shh. You hear the draw of a sword from unsheathed. And Paul knows what that means. And it says he cried out. Like he cried out. He said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're all here. And I think the next thing that he heard, the text doesn't say this, but I think he heard the biggest sigh a man has ever let out. His life was on the line here. But God was after him. The hound of heaven had been released upon this man. And he sent Paul and Silas to be his voice box. And so what he does is he responds with bring the lights in. Let's make sure everybody's there. And then his next response is that he falls down in fear before Paul and Silas. He owes them his life. He owes them his life. Look what happens next, verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You want to talk about the easiest evangelistical opportunity you've ever been given. What must I do to be saved? (laughs) You want to talk about the most simple gospel presentation ever? Look at verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Simple. Sometimes we try and help the gospel out by complicating it. Make it super simple here. And it says that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Talk about a turning of events here. This is incredible. This is the business that God is in. These are the kind of things that God does when his people rest in him in the midst of their circumstances. Paul goes on. He, he, he tells that this guy comes to him and he says, what must I do to be saved? I recognize my need to be saved. How did he recognize it? Nobody said anything here. They were praying. They were singing. He was sleeping. This is the Holy Spirit in this moment. I want you to understand this wasn't just an instant thing like the Holy Spirit had been working on this guy. How? I don't know. I don't know how that works, but you can't believe on Jesus unless you're drawn. That's what he said in John 6, 44. No one can come to the Father unless they're drawn. How are you drawn by the Holy Spirit? That means that God has gone before you and he's at work in the people's lives that he's put in your life. And, you know, you have the privilege to be his voice box in the moment, but the work's already been done. Like the drawing has already happened. Sometimes he uses us in those moments, but he's at work in the heart of a person, and he's at work in this guy's life, and this guy's ready to be saved. There are people in your life ready to be saved. They might not ask you the question, but they're ready. God's drawing. Well, how do you know? Because the Bible tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's how I know. Uh, If you're faithful, you'll see it. If you're faithful, you'll see God move like this to share the gospel with people. You'll be faithful. What must I do? Might not come this way, but he's preparing the heart. And Paul tells him, listen, just believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Notice what he doesn't do is get people to jump through their little theological hoops. Well, you got to do this, and then you got to do that. And then if you're ready, Paul Washer would say, 
then you gotta do this, this, and this, and this. But let's just make sure we're on the same page. I'm not sure if you're here or there or whatever. Why are we complicating this? It's super simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. I'm super passionate about this because that's how I got saved. Literally knew nothing. I heard the gospel. I knew Jesus died for me. I didn't even know what that meant really, to be honest. Like if I'm being 100% transparent, I had no connection with my sin. I didn't understand it. I wasn't grieved that I had sinned against the God of the heaven. What I knew I was going to die in, I knew that there was an eternity and I know Jesus was the way. That's all I knew. And when I called on the Lord Jesus to save me, he did. This message works. Oftentimes we get in the way of the gospel by trying to, to get people to say the things that we think they need to say in order for them to be saying as if we're saving them. Listen. He's already done the work. All we're doing is we're just simply there to be a tangible Jesus in the moment so that there's somebody standing there that the Lord says, oh, just believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It reminds me of a story that I heard about a survivor of the Titanic, the, the unsinkable ship. Four years after it had sank, uh, a man stood up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in a testimony meeting and here's what he said. I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought a man toward me in the sea and his name was John Harper. He was hanging to a piece of wreckage and as he neared me, he said, man, are you saved? No, I, no I'm not saved, I replied. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the waves took him away. But strange to say, they brought him back a little bit later and he said, are you saved yet? <laughs> and he said, no. And he said, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I watched him go down. And he said, there alone in the night, with two miles of water underneath me, I believed and I was saved. He said, I was John Harper's last convert. Do you know there's drowning people all around us? And we have a very simple message to present to people. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. It's a simple message that yields eternal reward. This man, his entire life changed. Not just him, but all of his household. They all believed on the Lord Jesus and were saved in this moment. It tells us that they, they were baptized because that's what you do after you give your life to Jesus. You're, you make a public profession of the Lord and you, you identify with him that you were buried with him and you were raised to life. You, you're baptized. He was baptized. He cleaned Paul and Silas up. They were probably bloodied from the whipping that they had taken. And then he set some food before him. And notice what it says here. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. It wasn't because his life was saved in that moment, you know, physically. It was because his life was saved spiritually, eternally. He was rejoicing, not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. The fact that his sins had been washed away and that he now was going to heaven forever with God. And he rejoiced in that. This brings us to our final point. Living a lifestyle that changes lives means standing your ground for what is right. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying... Let those, go, let those men go. And the jailer uh, reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. <laughs> Paul's like, nope, not happening. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Listen, here's the trump card. Men who are Roman citizens. Men who are Roman citizens. And taken us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And listen, they were afraid 
when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came out, they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The next day, the magistrates, for some just coincidental reasoning, they just decided to let them go. No, because they had completed the mission. Do you see God's sovereignty in the work here? They had completed the mission. It was time for them to move on. Who's orchestrating this? God is orchestrating this. The magistrates prepare to let them go. They probably don't even understand why. Because God is at work in this situation. The jailers come and they tell them, hey, why don't you guys just exit out the side door and ride off into the sunset? Not gonna happen, bro. Why? Because you beat us publicly. And you know what? Here's the trump card that we could have laid in the beginning, but we didn't because God had a plan in the midst of this. Do you understand that? Do you understand that they could have, they could have gotten out of all of this in an instant? I, it's interesting to also think about this. Why Paul and Silas? There were four of them. What happened to Timothy and Luke? Why wasn't it Paul and Timothy? Or why wasn't it Silas and Luke? Why was it Paul and Silas? You know why? They were the only ones that were Roman citizens. Do you see the sovereignty of God at work in the midst here? It was because God said, it's Paul and Silas that I need in this situation. I don't know if Timothy and Luke were there, but if, even if they weren't there when they were arrested, that's the sovereignty of God at work. None of this is coincidence, folks. God had a plan in the midst of this. And now, here's the thing that Christians need to understand, that there is a time to stand publicly for what's right. What's right in the situation? To ride off in the sunset and get away from the circumstance? No, the right thing to do is stand and say, no, we're not going to run away from Philippi. We're gonna go encourage the brothers who just witnessed this situation. If I'm a, a brand new Christian and I see the persecution that happens immediately after I become a Christian, I'm worried. I'm concerned like, well, if this is what this Jesus thing is all about, I'm not sure I'm in. This church is getting established here. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. Here's where the Roman citizenship happens so that we can circle back. And so that we can encourage the brothers and sisters that have come to Christ now and tell them, listen, God is sovereign. He's in control of your circumstances. You just stand your ground and you walk in these circumstances. You trust him in the moment. You remain silent and let him be your defender. And if he tells you to say something, say what he tells you to say. Walk in the spirit. And, he, and that's why he didn't leave. He said, no, you tell them to come apologize to us publicly. And then we'll deal with it. We're living in a day and an age, in our country particularly, where Christians have to stand their ground for what's right. We have to stand our ground for what's right. We've been given a constitution to protect our rights to gather. We've been given a constitution to protect our freedom of speech. And if we don't stand our ground in these things, they'll be taken from us. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be political crusaders or anything like that. We need to be Christians that understand our rights that are given by God, and we need to stand in them. We don't cower from the enemy. We don't run away from these things. We stand our ground. And if we've learned anything over the last couple years, folks, that is the message that we need to stand. And I'm talking in America here because God has given us these things. And we need to stand our ground in these things. Paul utilized the law in this situation. He utilized the law. We have a law that's meant to protect us, who, by the way, rule them. It's our responsibility. And if we don't take it right, if we don't, take, if we don't stand our ground for what's right, then who will? Hey, listen, at the end of the day, uh, over the past that, you know, six months or so, the things that I've learned, we're never shutting our church down, ever. We're not gonna do mass. We're not doing any of that stuff. I don't care what happens. I mean, if, if Marty has to go to jail for it, so be it. I mean, 
We're not doing it. We, you know, so, so don't be alarmed by what you're hearing in the news. Because that ain't happening here. We're not doing that. We're, we're going to stand our ground because we can legally. We can legally, and that's what we're going to do. It tells us here that they went and proceeded to Lydia's house. They encouraged them. And after they had uh, encouraged them, they, they departed the city. This is what it looks like to live a lifestyle that changes lives, folks. I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus, but this is a lifestyle you need to adopt in your life to understand that, you know, attack the problem, not the person. Take the consequences of being a Christian like a champ. Worship God even when it hurts and stand your ground for what's right. God will not only change your life by living this way, but he will change other people's lives too. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.